Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today I'm talking to Dr. Hussein Haji, the CEO of Philsan Somalia and the Executive Director of the Somali Agriculture Technical Group, SATG. Dr. Haji grew up in Somalia and inspired by the food production around him, he studied agriculture and started work at the Somali Agricultural Research Institute. But his interest in plant breeding took him to study internationally, first in India and then in Canada, where due to the Somali civil war in the 90s, he settled. He talks about the lessons learned from working with tobacco, using tissue culture to boost a nationally important cash crop, and his commitment to helping rebuild agricultural capability in his homeland, despite the challenges of running a business surrounded by civil unrest. I hope you enjoy it. So Hussein, perhaps you could start by giving me a little overview about your background. Were you always interested in plants specifically? And um, did you consider any other careers along the way? Well, uh, thanks, um, Hannah, for giving me this opportunity to talk about who we are and what we do uh, in Somalia. I was raised uh, from a family that has no agricultural background whatsoever, but we were surrounded in my early childhood with agriculture uh, areas like in the southwest uh, of Somalia where agriculture is uh, is the main uh, livelihood for the people there. So I could see, you know, when I was even young, traveling uh, outside of Marka, going to Janale, to Coriole, and all these uh, are very rich uh, agriculture areas and they have really good uh, water resources for uh, irrigation as well. So I was uh, uh, very much attracted by that. In fact, when I went to school, to the agriculture sector, my parents were kind of surprised and said, what are you doing there? You know, Because they were more on like business background and I was more attracted to agriculture. So I had that uh, passion for agriculture when, when, I, when I was even young. And so, so you were obviously attracted over to agriculture by what you saw around you. But you, did your parents um, in time come to, come to understand why you chosen to go down that route instead of business? Well, of course. I mean, they understood uh, later. And I had to also make them understand that this is about food security. And we live in a country where uh, there is an issue with food security always. You know, there's a drought, there's flooding, there is uh, low production, there's lack of technology and all the things. Over the years, I, I was able to attract them into uh, what I was doing because for them, all what they saw, uh, agriculture, just like subsistence farmers going into the farm and doing very menial jobs. There was no kind of like new innovations into the agriculture. But what I was able to convince them that this is not like a one-man show. This is like a factory by itself. It's like a business by itself with so many facets and, and, and aspects into it. It's a whole value chain that you have to work in the agriculture sector, starting from the production, from processing, all the way to you know the consumers. So this is not like a simple thing. So I think they uh, 
they, they understood at some point that this is a very important aspect of life. Came around in the end. And I think that is quite a widespread misunderstanding for people who don't understand agriculture um, or don't come from an agricultural background. So, um, so it's yes, I, I can relate to that. You mentioned that you started to focus on plant breeding when you went on to do your master's. So what made you decide to go from the broader range of subjects in agriculture more generally into plant breeding specifically? Yeah, when I was going to university, my first degree, so we had a number of courses that we were doing. Like, you know, I mean, you go to university, you start from math, uh, botany, pathology, entomology. And in the last year, in my last year, that's when I took the genetics uh, and plant breeding course from Somali National University. And then I realized that uh, it is more challenging and more attractive to me compared to other courses that I was taking. So you studied your undergraduate degree and got a job at the Agricultural Research Institute in Somalia. What were you doing there? So that is where I was doing, like, not the plant breeding as such, but uh, as a research assistant, you know, just helping and, and understanding the actual work of plant breeding as well, because just graduating from university, you, you know very little about uh, plant breeding. But then back then in Somalia, there was no, like, real breeding going on. It was more like an uh, evaluation and assessment uh, of the varieties introduced from outside the country. So I didn't have uh, a lot of flavor in plant breeding until later when I went to my first MSc degree in India, a place called ICRISAT, International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics. That's when I started experiencing my plant breeding work. And um, could you build a picture for me of what Somalia's agricultural scene was like in the 1980s and early 1990s? In the 1980s uh, until like uh, 1990, there was a lot of involvement that the government were doing to restructure the agriculture in Somalia. Production-wise, there were uh, food crops that were produced as well as fruits and vegetable crops. I don't know if you've heard about Somalia was uh, used to export banana to Europe, to Italy, and to Middle East, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, the agriculture was very vibrant, and there was quite uh, a bit of work uh, that was being done. The production was not sufficient enough to meet the demand of the country, but there was there was a good production system, and the research was trying to address the constraints that existed in the production system, like uh, how to increase the yield, how to get varieties resistant to drought tolerance and uh, insects and diseases and all the things. There were about 200 people working in that research with, with an immense facility working all aspects of uh, agricultural research, including pathology, entomology, soils, and uh, you know economy and marketing and all the things. And breeding also, of course, that was my area that I was working in. So there was um, a good structure before the civil unrest for agriculture research, for agriculture extension, for storage and all the things. It was better structured than what we have now. So you did two master's degrees, um, one in India and one in Canada before going on to do your PhD also in Canada. Can you tell me a bit about that, how that happened? As I said, my first degree of master, I got it from uh, India and that was with Ikrisad. And ICRISAD being one of the international centers, uh, that gave me really a very good exposure and research because it's one of the CG centers, like CG means Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research. 
So that is um, a lot of scientists work in that Tikrisat, and I was exposed to research uh, in, in sorghum. Uh, I did breeding, and uh, uh, I was working on insect resistance. So I came back to Somalia and joined agriculture research again, doing breeding work on sorghum. At some point, I became like the national sorghum improvement coordinator in Somalia. And then I was promoted to as a director of research. So traveling to Canada, so of course, I mean, uh, the Canadian system is very rigorous. And sometimes they want you to prove yourself, you know, degrees coming from overseas, sometimes they don't recognize. So I had to do it another master again uh, in genetics and plant breeding. So I completed my master's and then went straight into PhD in plant breeding again. I was working at that time with genotype environment interaction in wheat, uh, underlying causes of GBI interaction. So I did my dissertation work and that work and published some uh, papers on GBI interaction in wheat with the Canadian Journal of, of Plant Science. 96, 97, that's when I completed my PhD in Canada. And and it was, of course, around that time that the civil unrest began in Somalia. So had you originally planned to go back to Somalia when you'd finished your PhD? And um, how did that change? Uh, yes. In fact, the civil war started in 91. So what I did is I just continued with my education. Uh, with my Somali passport, and I had a visa, Canadian visa, international student. And at that time, there were so many, uh, I mean, Somalis coming to Canada as refugees. But I didn't have intention to apply to any immigration status in Canada until 1996, when I realized that country was just like falling apart, and there was no hope for me to go back to Somalia to do any work. So I decided to apply for immigration status in Canada, and I got the immigration status, and immediately I was offered a job with Agriculture Canada. And that's what took you into the world of tobacco, is that right? So I worked with Canadian Tobacco Research Foundation for almost like 10 years in a place called Delhi in Canada. And uh, really tobacco offers uh, many things. People see it as like crop that people smoke, but it has a lot of other advantages. You know, when you are working on the breeding section of tobacco, one is tobacco is a model crop for breeders. If you go back into the history, most of the discoveries that was made in genetics and plant breeding, it came through tobacco because they use tobacco as a model crop. You can get a lot of seed from uh, a cross between two parents in tobacco. You can study the population and you can do back crosses. You can do haploid breeding. You can do hybrid breeding. So you, so many things that you can do. I started doing work in tobacco breeding. I inherited uh, a program which was dealing with self-pollinated crop. And then what, what happened is that I had to introduce ideas uh, in, in the tobacco program like uh, the hybrid breeding program and haploid breeding program, in addition to conventional uh, breeding method that I inherited. Maybe I should express here my very appreciation to the Canadian government, you know, giving me the immigration status and offering me a job while I was, uh, you know, I just graduated uh, from, from university. And I really have learned a lot by being in the tobacco industry. And how long were you in Canada altogether for? Oh, Half of my life. Half of your life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go on to ask, how did you come back to Somalia? Because I knew you. I know you got settled in, in Canada and you had your family there. But then at some point, you decided to go back to Somalia. So tell me about that. Tell me about that transition. The tobacco program was, was, was shrinking in Canada. 
and then there was uh, an offer for uh, like uh, an exit strategy from the program. So I, I, I was very happy to take that offer. But during that time, I was engaged in the agriculture program in Somalia because what we have done uh, during that period of time while I was in Canada, we established with other friends, Somalia Agriculture Technical Group. So this uh, was established in, in the U.S. in 2000. One, we were a group of uh, Somalis, professionals and non-Somalis who have interest in Somali agriculture. We used to meet the American Society of Agronomy. Uh, when I go there every year, I used to meet with other colleagues uh, who were interested in Somali agriculture. And then we decided to have a symposium within the American Society of Agronomy. We invited a number of people. So we established this NGO called Somali Agriculture Technical Group, where I was leading that team while I was in Canada. And, and we, we made a registration for, for Somali Agriculture Technical Group. We were providing supervisory services to the NGOs in Somalia and to others who were interested in working in, in the agriculture sector. So later on, since we already had that institution established, I started my immediate move to, to Kenya where we established SATG office in Kenya. And immediately we had a very warm welcome from the donors and from NGOs. And what's the range of services that you were covering at SATG at that point? Um, was it uh, mainly focused on agronomy or was there a wider range? It was a, a wider range, you know, any issue related to agriculture, because the group consisted of uh, agronomists, plant breeders, plant pathologists, economists, uh, even livestock sector, you know. We had this range of technical uh, people who were offering support and advisory role to any issues, any issues that emerge. When you returned, the agricultural landscape in Somalia was dramatically different to when you left. So what kind of challenges did you face? You know, after uh, the civil unrest, the whole infrastructure of Somalia collapsed, like agricultural infrastructure, plus, plus all other uh, infrastructures in Somalia. There was no uh, universities, there's no education system, there's no extension services, there's no research. You know, everything collapsed. So when I uh, went back to Somalia, I realized that uh, there's a long way to go to, to reestablish uh, the whole system. Many areas were controlled by the rebel groups and there was fighting all over. So it was very, very, very difficult situation to see, you know, a, a country that has a system in place, that there was a research, there was services, and now there's nothing. It was a really, really big challenge, you know, to think of where to start and how to go about it. I had to start from just a small plot of farm that was offered to me by a farmer. That's where we start establishing, uh, doing our research in that small plot. And that was in 2000, what, 2013, 2014. Was SATG offering services to help NGOs who wanted to intervene or support in Somalia? Or was it actively offering services directly to farmers? So just sort of explain to me the scope of the activities, and has that changed over time? When I first arrived in Kenya, uh, and, and when I was in Canada even, we were offering services to NGOs, like advisory services. But when we uh, established ourselves in Kenya, immediately uh, after the first year, we were offering services on the ground with NGOs and also with the donors. FAO was among those who really uh, supported us in establishing uh, our uh, organization and we were working on post-harvest losses in 2011-2012 and then 
immediately there was a program from USAID called the Partnership for Economic Growth, where they needed uh, some support in, in, in the research and, uh, and extension work. And we started doing some work with USAID on behalf of uh, DAI. Uh, in, in, in Somaliland. And then we moved to southern Somalia where the real agriculture work takes place. So we established an incubation center called Agribusiness Incubation Center in Afgoi, um, not very far from Mogadishu. And that's where we started doing our work, providing a wider service to anyone else who, were, who was interested in the agriculture sector. So we had a lot of uh, customers coming to us to help them in in the agriculture sector, in the seed system, in the agronomy sector, in pathology sector, even offering training to a number of NGOs to get back into the uh, agriculture sector. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. We've been talking about SATG and how that operates, but now I want to touch on the other organisation you're involved with, Philsan. Can you tell me about that and why it was set up? Well, the reason uh, that Filson was set up was that with the NGO type of work that we were doing, we were not able to do what we wanted to do. So we decided to have Filson as a private social enterprise business that goes along with the SCTG. And Filson um, has, a, has a wide range of activities, doesn't it? There's soil analysis and seed production and so on. So tell me a little bit about that and and the range of things that Philsan does and um, why? Why those things? Well, as I mentioned to you, like the whole infrastructure in Somalia collapsed. So if a farmer wants to do a soil analysis, they don't have any place to go because there's no soil analysis lab in, in the whole Somalia. If a farmer wants to test his seed, there's no place where they can test their germination and purity for the seed. We felt that it's very important to set up a private sector because there's no private sector in place that works on improved seed varieties or soil analysis. So that is what prompted us to get into Filson to at least get some of the services back to the farmers. With Filson, so we have established like the soil laboratory, which is in small scale, but it serves the purpose because if a farmer has a problem in his farm, he brings the soil to Filson, we'll be able to determine the soil nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which are the three key elements for, for the soil. So we are able to tell the farmer if there's a shortage in any, in any of this, plus the soil salinity, if his soil is saline, and we'll tell him if his pH is very high or very low. So at least it will give some indication to the farmers to correct, and we'll give some recommendation measures as well. And the same thing with the seed lab, where we have farmers will bring their seed, we will test them for purity, germination, and moisture content, and we'll tell them like if the seed is viable enough to grow. And that's what we do with the soil and seed lab. A clarifying question. When we're talking about farmers, what kind of scale are we talking about? Is this subsistence farming, smallholder farming, or is it larger scale than that? Majority of the farmers in Somalia, almost 90% and above, they are small-scale farmers, subsistence small-scale farmers. But then you have also commercial farmers, which are composed of a small percentage. And these are mainly farmers who grow bananas and citrus plants. They're not as 
big in number as the small-scale farmers. And of course, there are a certain percentage of middle-scale farmers as well. You've touched on citrus and bananas as examples of the kind of crops that Phil Sand deals with. And I'm going to come back to bananas in a moment. But what other types of crops are you involved in? Um, we are involved mainly in food security crops and, uh, and also commercial crops as well. We are working with the maize and, and sorghum, which are the two most important crops in Somalia. And we also engage with cowpea, which is also a very important legume crop, and mung beans. Uh, in addition to these four, we also engage with sesame, which is an oil crop. So we produce and uh, purify seeds of these crops and package it and sell it to the farmers. In addition, uh, we also do some vegetable work, all tropical vegetables grown in Somalia, like tomato and onions and carrots and watermelon and other things. But in this case, like we are not in a position to develop the seeds locally. So we import uh, bulk seeds uh, from outside the country and we repackage it in according to farmers' requirement. And are you doing breeding on those crops as well or is it more like screening? Yeah, well, most of the work that we do is more on a screening to see which varieties are adaptable to the condition of Somalia. But we do a little bit of breeding in, in partnership with, uh, with Simit and also in partnership with uh, Ikrisat for Solvent. So the breeding work that we do uh, with Simit is that like we have got uh, some inbred lines uh, of a hybrid which we tested in Somalia. So what we do is more of like a seed production uh, rather than breeding as such because we have the two inbred lines. We have to cross these two inbred lines to get the F1 hybrid that will be commercialized and sold to the farmers. Because nowadays, you know, if you talk about maize, Simit is doing quite a significant work in developing inbred lines. So you, sometimes you don't need to repeat the same thing that's being done by already uh, giant uh, international organizations. We take advantage of this, of Ikrisat and Semit, to get the proper materials uh, that's suitable for Somalia. I'm, I'm curious about sorghum just for a moment to go slightly off to one side, because some, um, sorghum is indigenous to that part of the world, isn't it? It's, um, it's native to that part of the world. So does that mean that there is a, a lot of genetic diversity of sorghum types in Somalia and, and land races and so on? And do you ever tap into that, that wealth? Yeah, we did. We did. In fact, in Somalia, uh, as you mentioned uh, correctly, sorghum is, is indigenous in that part of the world. And what we have, in fact, is more of a land races than, uh, than varieties. So what we have done in the past, we have done a local germplasm collection in partnership with ICRISAD in the, in, the, in the mid 80s. In fact, we have collected about uh, 152 land races, which we have stored. And uh, now in, in partnership with ICRISAD, we are repatriating some of these promising land races back into Somalia so that we can start some breeding work among the local varieties and among the local and introduced varieties as well. When you have a land race, when you have an indigenous crop, it's very hard to beat. Unlike maize, sorghum needs really to focus on your land race before you get introductions of improved varieties from outside because most likely the land races will have more tolerance to drought and to diseases than any other introduced variety. And I'd like to go back to bananas now because 
that's an emerging part of Phil Sands' activities, and I know you've been putting a lot of time and effort into it. Can you tell me about that? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, banana was an export crop uh, in Somalia, and uh, one of the major cash crops that was bringing foreign currency into the country. But after the Civil War, the banana industry collapsed. So this, I mean, tissue culture idea was something that I've been thinking about it for a long time. Even when I was, uh, I mean, in Canada, uh, I was doing some tissue culture uh, work in tobacco. So I thought that this te- uh, technology can easily work in banana because banana is, is, is very simple to work with when it comes to tissue culture. Many African countries now I uh, have resorted to using of tissue culture banana. So I, I did some research on uh, the challenges that the farmers in Somalia are facing using suckers from from the previous crop because what happens is that when they plant the sucker almost like 30 uh, percent and above will it will die because of the diseases and insects that comes along with the sucker and it's not clean so that is what brought me and and there's so much labor into it planting suckers in the field so that was what uh, brought me into this world of tissue culture to think about introducing this technology back in Somalia. Can, what, what variety of banana are we talking about here? We're talking about the local banana varieties, which is a Cavendish, uh, and the variety name is McNairn. So this is like a variety that has been used, that, that's being used in many countries, and it's very famous. But this introduction uh, took place a long time ago in Somalia. And the other interesting thing is that we didn't want to introduce any other variety in Somalia because of uh, the Panama disease and all these uh, issues with the banana. And banana is a very important crop in Somalia, and we didn't want to contaminate with any other introduce varieties because we, we don't know what, what happens if you introduce a new a new strain. So what we did is we started working with the local variety, which is granin, took the suckers from the granin and started doing the tissue culture initiation with the varieties that are known to the farmers. And so, you, so you've um, set up this tissue culture capability um, so that so that farmers can get large enough volumes and clean material and it's more likely to establish and where where have you got to when will that go live well uh, now we are uh, at the pilot phase we started this work like establishing uh, the tissue culture lab and bringing all the media that is required to regenerate the plant so our idea is first of all get these things working, which we have done successfully and we have reached at the final stage. Now the tissue culture plants that we have produced from the lab are now in the greenhouse. So we have seen at least the fruit of our work through the lab for many years. So now where we are going from here is that to establish uh, and upscale the lab and and equip it properly, uh, because now we know that at least it works and the technology is beneficial to the farmers. So in this small lab, we have a plan of producing about half a million plant in the next year and make it readily available to the commercial farmers. And that in itself, you know, the activities that you've described that Phil Sun's involved in, setting up a tissue culture capability, doing seed screening and production, soil analysis, setting those services up in any country would be challenging, but particularly in Somalia where the infrastructure is more limited, it must have been quite difficult. So could you just tell me a little bit about the kind of day-to-day challenges that you faced in getting all these different components off the ground? I mean, working in Somalia, 
is a big challenge. I'll just give you an example. We have tissue culture uh, lab facility or whole fill cell facilities placed uh, 11 kilometers away from Mogadishu. And we have uh, a farm, our incubation farm is about 30 kilometers away from Mogadishu. But for me to get from Mogadishu to kilometer 11, it takes me like two hours to get there. So the whole Mogadishu area is so close uh, that you cannot cross from one area to another area without going through lines of checkpoints and, uh, and searches for the car or for you. It's really, really challenging. Plus, all these uh, explos- uh, explosions that takes place and uh, assassinations and killings and all the things. So the government is doing really a, a great job in overcoming this problem. But it's uh, something that uh, you have to go through when you are in Mogadishu, and you go through so much risks to your life as well, you know, because you never know when when your day will come. I mean, as I was working in the last uh, several years in Somalia, I've lost many friends uh, in Somalia who died because of uh, explosions that took place. The thing is that, you know, we took a mission uh, which we have to do this work with or without peace. So we could not just sit and wait for the peace to come so that we can operate. It sounds like an incredibly tough environment to make things happen in. And yet that's exactly what you're doing. And that is remarkable. And this also affects, I presume, the way that you get your products to customers too. I mean, these are living materials and they need to be transported quickly and carefully. So how do you work with your customers to get things out to them? You know, I mean, we have different customers. Uh, Some of our customers are the farmers and they will come to maybe the facility to buy the product. Uh, other customers are, are like an NGO uh, development organizations. So when we uh, we tell them like what where we can reach and where we cannot reach. And sometimes, in fact, recently we had to send shipments by plane into uh, remote areas where we could not reach by car because there's no road infrastructure or maybe there are checkpoints where you cannot cross. There are some bad guys around the area. So we have to take uh, whatever means possible to reach into the remote areas. Like sometimes we have to hire small planes uh, that goes from one location to other location and pack them with seeds uh, so that they can land into that location and distribute seed. So it's very, very difficult. But that makes things expensive for our buyers. Uh, like, for example, if a kg of maize seed is a dollar, probably the price can go up to like $3 or $4 because of the additional cost of flights and, and all the things. So it's not an easy task. You've been on an amazing journey setting up Philsan and SATG. What have you learned throughout that process? Well, what I have learned is uh, is that If you have something in your mind and you are passionate about it, you can do it no matter what. You know, with all these ideas that and experience that I've accumulated over the years in Somalia and in Canada, I felt that, you know, this is uh, the time to do something. And I've been dreaming and I've been putting my uh, projects uh, together and thinking through it. If you don't do anything about it, it will just remain as a dream uh, and, and it will be on the shelf. So... I felt that I have to do something and that what pushed me to get into that. And I think it, it, it's very rewarding, you know, because um, you're changing lives of, uh, of very uh, poor people. And uh, so that, that's what, what, what drives me to, to these to this adventurous uh, things to do. And what next? What does the future hold? What, what are your next plans? 
my next plan is to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I think well earned. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, I, you know, I've done enough. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a 65. Uh, uh, but we say in Somalia, Somalis won't retire until they die. You know, they just keep going. All my friends have retired, my non-Somali friends. Uh, but my Somali friends are still around doing some work. You know, honestly speaking, I just want to see these uh, things working. I still uh, think that I'm healthy and fit enough to do some work. I just want to push some of this agenda forward. I'm really very pleased because, you know, the, in the last 10 years that I've been involved in Somalia, we were able to get, uh, you know, some policies and regulations from uh, Minister of Agriculture side working. At least the seed systems is taking shape in Somalia now. The tissue culture is taking shape. Uh, at least um, there are some labs that people can come and do some work. I feel really satisfied with the, with that. And if I can push a little bit farther to upscale this uh, into a more commercial and productive uh, aspect of it, I will do it uh, as much as I can do. Thank you very much for your time today. It has been such an interesting and inspiring conversation. Dr. Hussein Haji, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.